We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Welcome everybody back to part 10 of the Socialism Series with Michael Graney. And this time you guys will get a, get your popcorn ready, put the mother and children to bed and get some dinner. It's the passion of G.K. Chesterton. Well, it's not quite uh, Mel Gibson, but uh, I'll do my best. It does describe, I think, his sufferings. And he did, in my opinion. Now, one phrase that if you don't hear me say it, just insert it yourself is, in my opinion, because this presentation is almost guaranteed to upset everyone who considers themselves a Chestertonian or distributist. Uh, I think I may have uncovered a few things that they haven't considered or haven't looked at in the same light that I'm looking at it. So if you don't hear me say, in my opinion, just sort of self-edit and stick it in. In fact, starting right away. Uh, because there, I think that possibly no modern writer has been misunderstood more than Chesterton, especially by his fans. Uh, most of them seem to want to turn him into some kind of Fabian socialist, which is kind of equivocal in any event, because Fabian socialism isn't a type of socialism, it's a type of strategy or technique. According to the Fabian Socialists, especially George Bernard Shaw and some of the early historians like Frank Podmore and Edward Pease and the others, Fabian Socialism can encompass any type of socialism, even Marxist Communism, and as we'll find out, even Stalinist Communism. It's the technique, it's not the substance. Virtually anything that calls itself socialist and quite a few things that don't call themselves socialists can be fitted within the broad framework of Fabian socialism because it's the technique, it's the strategy and the tactics of remaining hidden. Don't call, the, the idea is to convert people to become socialists without calling them socialists. And frankly, this ticked off an early Fabian socialist by the name of H.G. Wells. Uh, Good writer, you, you're probably familiar with a lot of his science fiction, like The Time Machine, War of the Worlds, and so on and so forth. And don't do as I do all the time and confuse Orson Welles with his broadcast of War of the Worlds with H.G. Wells, who wrote War of the Worlds. Uh, we will sell no story before it's time here. Uh, but H.G. Wells was an honest man. And he might argue with someone like Chesterton, but you knew where he stood at all times. He was a socialist and he made no bones about it. And he split with the Fabian Society probably because they insisted upon doing you know, things that were un-British, remaining hidden. And you may say what you like about English gentlemen, but the best type is not gonna engage in any kind of subterfuge. 
whatever else you may think of them, being of Irish, German, Swiss descent, I can give you another whole story on that, but we won't. We'll just say that an English gentleman at his finest is at his finest. <laughs> or even an English gentlewoman of all classes, not just the aristocracy who have their own problems. <clears throat> uh, another lecture. Uh, but to get back to Chesterton, of course, was considered more he was he was considered the Irish Englishman whereas George Bernard Shaw was considered the English Irishman I have no idea what that means uh, um, Maurice Evans right after Chesterton died in 1936 uh, won uh, an essay the Labob Prize essay apparently this is it's a big thing Cambridge University I think uh, and he wrote an essay on Chesterton saying that Chesterton's wit has made him one of the best read and least studied of modern thinkers. His essays are clusters of brilliant epigrams and their substance is nonetheless true for being neatly stated. Now, as I say with all of these, I don't like to give all these extended quotes. And of course I violate that all the time, but especially in a presentation on Chesterton because he said it oh so much better than I ever could that I have to steal his words but of course attributed them to him. Mm -hmm. Of course, according to most Chestertonians, I'm misusing his words and misquoting them or taking out of context, but that's your opinion. I'm giving my opinion. Remember the, maybe we ought to have a flashing light that just says IMO that goes on every time I talk. <laughs> we need special glasses by the end of this. <laughs> I need special glasses anyway. I'm going blind trying to read my own writing here. and but. Evans continues, says, yet that very verbal felicity, which has so admirably performed its function of amusing, is the cause of widespread distrust. It is enough to call Chesterton paradoxical to destroy his claim as a serious thinker in the eyes of many people. And frankly, I found this true of a lot of people who admire Chesterton, you know, quite rightly in my opinion. But what they do is they comb through what he wrote till they find something that agrees or they think agrees with their position and then make up one of those little placards on Facebook or a little poster or something and say, this summarizes everything that Chesterton stood for. But I think that they lack the general theme of his entire life, which in my opinion was that his whole life after he became a Christian was to combat the new things of socialism, modernism, and the new age. Uh, by the time he was born, I think what was it was 1871, some, in the 1870s, I'll, I'll play it safe. Uh, this had been around for roughly half a century and it was still making inroads and has made even heavier inroads today as we're well aware, especially of course, if you've been watching this series, which of course you should. It's a complete course on everything you need to know about socialism, modernism, and the new age. Uh, Chesterton, born 74. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I was close. Yeah. Three years after Robert Hugh Benson. There you go. I, I remember Robert Hugh Benson's birthday because it was the same year that the future war series, uh, you know, genre of science fiction came into being with the publication of George Chesney's The Battle of Dorking. And why do I remember all this stuff? <laughs> Oh, I know. It's because R.H. Benson's most popular book was in that genre, Lord of the World, which most people mistake for prophecy. No, it was science fiction satire. 
please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now my wife gives me that all the time. How do you remember a movie 10 years ago, but you can't remember what you did yesterday? Yeah. We like, remember what's important. Exactly. <laughs> At least for the moment. She doesn't know. watch this, so we're good. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the theme of this presentation, if you want to take it, you know, even attribute a theme to it, is that Chesterton's life and, frankly, sufferings were geared or or tied in inextricably with his lifelong struggle against the new things. I mean, he was, the reason he was for reason, that doesn't, that sounds a little bit odd, but he was for reason, common sense for Christianity because it was based on the dignity of the human person, not the dignity of the abstraction of the collective. The collective is an abstraction made by man for man. The human person was made by God for God. So when you put the collective of humanity, you know, the collective above the human person, what you're basically doing is inverting the whole order of creation, as Fulton Sheen saw it, by putting by turning God into the servant of collective man, which really doesn't make that much sense. How can you turn the creator of everything into the servant of a creation? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, to return to our theme again, yet again, <laughs> uh, in what, what the new things were involved in, according to Chesterton and quite a few other people, such as C.S. Lewis and possibly Tolkien, I haven't gotten too much into him. It was the complete transformation of Christianity into a new religion under the name of Christianity. The new Christianity. Remember St. Simon. We started with him in the, in the first video in the series. And all the others, like Charles Foyer and Felicité uh, de Lamennais, neo-Catholicism, it was all a shift from the human person and God to the collective. The the creation of the kingdom of God on earth. Not the reign of Christ the King, that's something different, even though people often confuse them. But the new Christianity was, and it was intended to be, socialism, modernism. Modernism and socialism go hand in hand, as Chesterton pointed out more than once. And this is why Probably efforts to turn Chesterton into a great theologian or a great philosopher are, in my opinion, mistaken and and even wrong-headed. They're they're misdirected. I don't think they understand what he was doing, Uh, which was, of course, to oppose the new things. Uh, And, of course, I keep saying, in my opinion, so don't write the hate mail in yet. Uh, send it to Steve. Send it. To, send it all to Steve. He's responsible for it. He's letting this go on. I'll take it. I'm getting all this other heat. Go ahead. Bring it. <laughs> yeah. Now, because of Chesterton's concern for the dignity of the human person, from the very beginning, I think, uh, it's kind of hard to read his autobiography. He doesn't really tell you too much about himself. In fact, it, it's kind of like Fulton Sheen's autobiography in that he doesn't really tell you too much about him. Things that you wanted to know about, you don't find out except by reading, you know, the books by Maisie Ward and Corson and all the the, the, the. I have a full collection of Chesterton biographies, so I know almost nothing about Chesterton because I've read all the books. That's one of those Chestertonian paradoxes you hear about. 
before anyway. before Yogi came came down there was J.K. Chesterton. <laughs> Yogi was unique. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, although I, I I do love the way he said that. Uh, I never said half the things I said. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, due to his concern for the human person, Chesterton started out a socialist, a Fabian socialist. Uh, as was his brother Cecil and uh, Hilaire Belloc, surprisingly enough. Uh, they were all friends of George Bernard Shaw. Uh, and in fact, Cecil Chesterton was an early convert to, the, to, to, to Catholicism. Uh, and he and Belloc were viewed as sort of like the point men to present English Catholicism to the world. Uh, if you look in early newspapers about that, you know, the early 20th century, you'll always find the Chesterton and Belloc referred to as Cecil Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. And Hilaire Belloc was referred to as Cecil Chesterton's most intimate friend, uh, in a manly way, of course. Uh, I think one of the reasons that Cecil Chesterton may not enjoy the reputation that he might, he probably should, is because his widow kind of hated uh, Gilbert, his brother. She spread all kinds of nasty rumors about them. It, it just, just a, not a good situation. And apparently Chesterton thought very highly of his brother, which of course you should, but some people don't. Anyway, Cecil Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc were the original Chester Belloc, a term that I don't really care for. It was coined by George Bernard Shaw as a way of ridiculing, you know, Gilbert Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. And he managed to get it wrong. He got it backwards. He thought that Belloc was driving Chesterton. Turned out that Chesterton was the motive force in the duo. As became clear when Chesterton died and the life went out of everything. Uh, but we'll get to that. Now, uh, so, okay, I keep getting lost. As I said, I type these things up and then I scribble my notes all over them and then I can't figure out what the heck was I talking about here? Oh yeah, there I am. Uh, and there you are. Uh, now, it was sometime about 1908 that Chesterton began to be disillusioned, dis disillusioned with socialism as a way of solving problems. I found an, uh, an article relating a fragmentary debate, early debate in 1908 between Shaw and Chesterton. And it was, it was before Chesterton had learned how to handle Shaw. And Chesterton made the mistake of giving some specifics. And of course, Shaw being Shaw, you know, ignored the principles that Chesterton was trying to present and jumped all over the problems with his example. <coughs> Excuse me. Chesterton gave as an example of the right to own property as having a back garden, you know, a backyard. Uh, and instantly, Shaw took that as the principle. And it was obvious what he was doing. He turned an example into the principle that Chesterton was defending, saying, if, Ch if you know, Mr. Chesterton wants to defend the right of every Englishman to have a back garden, I will absolutely guarantee him that under the new system, he will have a back garden. Well, but that wasn't the point. The point was the right to own anything, not just what 
you write into the law saying, since Chesterton has made a principle of owning a back garden, we will permit him to own a back garden. Big deal. And he ignored the whole idea of power follows property, which was the point Chesterton was trying to make. After that, Chesterton wised up and he wouldn't give specifics, which drove Shaw absolutely bonkers. He would try to pin Chesterton down. Chesterton would give true generalities and Shaw would reply with false specifics. And yet they remained friends. I don't, maybe because he couldn't pin him down and he just got so irritated. He walked out of one debate. It was, fortunately it was an informal one, but it was right after Chesterton converted to Catholicism and they got into it and it was, it was taken down by Hesketh Pearson in shorthand. So they got the whole thing and Chesterton just refused to rise to any of Ch Shaw's uh, you know, baiting or anything else, would only give generalities. And Shaw finally got so angry that he jumps his good evening and left, you know, just stomped out of the room. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it was, that was about 1908 when they had that debate where Chesterton didn't come off very well until before he learned how to handle him. In 1909, uh, there was, uh, a man named Charles Masterson, who was a British politician, who was a friend of Chesterton and Belloc and the others, a Christian socialist. And he when, he, when he was elected to parliament, he did something not quite the way they wanted him to do it. So they all got ticked off at him, except of course for Chesterton who refused to get ticked off at anybody. He might disagree with you 180 degrees, but he would still be friends with you. And which had some rather bizarre uh, results when you consider that there's a lot of people today who assume that because Chesterton was friendly with someone or even friends with them, that he approved of what they were saying. In fact, Arthur Penty, recall him in a, in a prior video, who is either the founder or one of the founders of Guild Socialism, which is a form of syndicalism, which spun off from Fabian Socialism over a dispute about tactics, not substance, because the Fabian said, we'll welcome you back anytime you want to just call yourself a Fabian. And Penty wrote a book and asked Chesterton to do the foreword to it. Well, I read the foreword because people have taken this as evidence that Chesterton approved of Arthur Penty's position and his theories. Well, I read the foreword and it is one of the most remarkable things Chesterton ever wrote because it's impossible to find out that he actually said anything in it. It's one of the few things Chesterton ever wrote in which he didn't say anything. It's, it's something like, this book raises important questions. Yeah, well, most books do, but what? And yet, if compare that with the, with the introduction that he wrote to Sheen, Fulton Sheen's first book, and he goes straight to the heart of the matter. The Catholic Church is the champion of reason and you know, common sense in the world. No bones about it. He fully approved of what Fulton Sheen wrote in that book. You can't find out what Chesterton thought from reading the, the forward to, to the book, to the, to the forward that he wrote to Penty's book. Anyway, to return to our subject here, in 1909, Charles Masterman wrote a book, The Condition of England. And it frankly was considered a socialist classic. And it, basically talked about all the solutions and all the problems of England. And 
talked in, in collectivist terms, you know, groups, classes, everything. There was nothing about the human person. And in 1910, Chesterton wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World? Now, I've seen so many different, you know, analyses of what's wrong with the world. The most common seems to be that in What's Wrong with the World, Chesterton presents his political theory. Not exactly. What he presented was a response to Masterman's The Condition of England. You put the two uh, tables of contents side by side and look at the way each one was, was treated, Chesterton was clearly responding to issues raised by Masterman. And he said so in the preface he wrote to What's Wrong with the World. And yet people seem to, it, it's as if he didn't write it. They, they ignore the fact and wonder, wow, this is a completely original work. No, actually Chesterton rarely wrote a book except in response to something. And he said this in most of his books. And yet people take them as if they're standalone pieces that are you don't need to put into context. Well, part of the purpose of this presentation is to say there is a definite context to those books which Chet, which most people regard as Chesterton's, you know, best or greatest. It I hate to use greatest writer for, for someone, especially when they say he was the greatest writer of all time. I got news for you. Time isn't over yet. Can you call Shakespeare the greatest writer of all time? A great writer, certainly, but we may still have some time left. I mean, eternity hasn't happened yet, or actually it's still going on, but you know what I mean. We haven't gotten to the end of time. <laughs> so you may consider Chesterton a great writer, but not the greatest one who ever lived. Unless, of course, you're going to kill everyone off right now. Anyway, when you look at what's wrong with the world, it where Masterman talked about, you know, the people. Chesterton talked about persons. Masterman wrote about all the children. Chesterton wrote about the child. Men, man. I mean, in every case, he was addressing the same issues as Masterman in What's Wrong with the World, not as a complete exposition of his own political theory, but as a response to that of Masterman. And that's important to keep in mind. Uh, and it was in that book that he first began presenting, you know, call it a philosophy of distributism, because he didn't really present any principles. He was very careful not to do that. Partly, I think, in order to uh, annoy Shaw, but also to avoid turning off people who might come to distributism, but who got nervous when you got too particular. So basically, distributism can be defined as a policy of widely distributed capital ownership. With a preference, not a mandate, as some people have said it, but a preference for small family-owned farms and artisan-type businesses. But then a couple of sentences after he says that, he, he then adds, if an enterprise must be large, it should be owned on shares by the workers. And then he made it perfectly clear. He met a joint stock company, a corporation. He wasn't against corporations. He saw them as vehicles, although much misused these days, to concentrate ownership. He saw them as a vehicle by means of which you could spread out ownership. 
And in that, I think that he was influenced by a fellow named Judge Peter Stenger Grosskamp, who wrote a number of articles before World War II on the need for widespread ownership of America's corporations. Grosskamp was one of Theodore Roosevelt's trust busters. And he was very friendly to Catholic social teaching, understood from what we would think of as a true distributive sense that corporations should be owned broadly by the workers and by other people in the country. And unfortunately, he was trapped in past savings, but we won't get into that. Although I did find a speech that Judge Grosscup gave before the Knights of Columbus in Chicago, even though he was a Protestant. And of course, he got accused by the nativists of being a crypto Catholic and other things. But we, <laughs> no, he was, he was a friend of Archbishop John Ireland, and they served on a committee together. But no, he was not a Catholic. He was a Protestant. He just wasn't a Catholic hater. Uh, <clears throat> now I got off my track again. Anyway, the condition of England, you know, spawned what's wrong with the world. And as I said, keep in mind, it's important that Chesterton's major books were always in response to something. They were, they, you must not take them as isolated things. You have to put them in context. Now, uh, Getting back to George Bernard Shaw, no matter what Chesterton said, he always managed to say that what Chesterton said was really socialism. Uh, as he said at one point, says distributism is plum center socialism. Uh, of course, to Shaw, everything ended up being Fabian socialism. I, I mean, I found some quote newspaper quotes in the 1930s when he was praising Stalin and saying that what Stalin was talking about was Fabian socialism. There's no, nothing in the world except for capitalism and Fabian socialism, according to George Bernard Shaw. Um, ownership was completely irrelevant to George Bernard Shaw. The only thing that mattered was income. And this is why, in my opinion, I think John Maynard Keynes was, at least in spirit, a Shavian socialist because if you are familiar with Keynesian economics, it's all income, it, it, it's all demand. As, as long as the government prints up its funny money backed by its own debt, everything will be fine because all you need to worry about is demand. Well, yes, but if all you worry about is demand and you think that past savings runs you know, all financial investment, you're gonna be promoting waste, consumerism, materialism. You want to get rid of at least the underpinnings of that, you're going to have to get away from Keynesian economics. It, it, it assumes waste as a given. And of course, you have to spur people to, to consume these wasteful products in order to generate savings to finance new capital. Yeah, this famous broken window idea. Yeah, basically. And Keynes, it, it, it's waste. It, it's the furthest thing from you know, what real classical economics was supposed to be, which is production equals consumption. Pr consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. That was Adam Smith's first principle of economics. Why produce something if you don't want to consume it? And why consume something that you don't want to consume? Much more rational than Keynes. Of course, I have a whole lecture on that. I, I actually wrote a book once called, that never got accepted by anybody, called Catholic Keynesians and other mythical creatures. But uh, <laughs> now, <clears throat> now, 
the okay i got off track again you, you're supposed to stop me from this i'm no, enjoying it I, you gotta stop <laughs> <laughs> okay now as shaw was saying even when uh chesterton gave the principles of distributism shaw insisted that they were really socialism uh and Chesterton didn't really help that any because even when he gave the principles, he said, not all distributists agree with these principles. Well, then they're not principles, really, are they? Uh, so that I actually had a prominent Chestertonian, and it's probably not who you think, uh, when we tried to explain, you know, the just what we call the just third way of economic personalism, you know, widespread capital ownership, uh, which pretty much states it, the whole program right there. He kind of, he, he wouldn't look me in the eye. And then later when somebody finally cornered him and said, why won't you even talk to these people? He says, it's not our way. Well, according to Chesterton, anything that was for expanded capital ownership was the distributist way. So how can you say it's not our way? It doesn't even make sense. That was a most un-Chestertonian un response from a prominent Chestertonian. Okay. Now, in 1912, Hilaire Belloc wrote his own critique of Fabian socialism, specifically, where Chesterton had, you know, responded to Masterman alone, pretty much, in, a, in general terms. Belloc went after Fabian socialism specifically, and he critiqued, the, you know, the Fabian the, and the syndicalist program of socializing capitalism, albeit handicapped by his fixation on past savings, the way Chesterton was too, in The Servile State, a book you're probably familiar with, 1912. Uh, now, it's an interesting book because in it, Belloc posited the servile state consisting of forcing people to work at wage system jobs even when they didn't want to or have to because the Fabian insistence was that only labor is productive, everyone must work, period, and get paid wages, uh, which is probably why Dorothy Day just didn't really care for socialism, despite all the efforts recently to turn her into a communist or a socialist or something. She did not like the wage system. She also did not like overweening state power. She used to talk about holy mother the state in a rather sarcastic way. I disagree with a lot of what Dorothy Day said, but not her general orientation, uh, even though I've been accused of it. Uh, now, but the real problem with the servile state is not forcing people to fill jobs, but as Gertz Briefs, who is a student of Heinrich Pesch and a member of the Königswinterkreis, pointed, explained in his book, The Proletariat in 1937, the real challenge of both capitalism and socialism is finding enough jobs for people. If you concentrate ownership and people can't produce by means of both their labor and their capital, especially when capital is taking over the bulk of production, you're gonna have trouble finding enough jobs for people. The politicians will have to start promising, oh, we will create jobs. Well, the jobs market will do great under me. But think of just the surreal nature of that statement. Create jobs, a jobs market. It, it doesn't even make sense. If you're looking at you know, economics from the point of view of, for instance, Say's law of markets where production equals income. I mean, 
you produce what you need and you consume what you produce. That's what economics is all about. Not, well, we need to create jobs so that people can have income so that they can buy the products which will generate the savings to create the capital by means of which we will create jobs for them. I can't explain that logically, so I won't even bother to try. Now, as I said, Shaw was absolutely fixated with the idea that whatever was not Fabian socialism was capitalism and vice versa. So he, as I said, he even praised Stalin. He, he visited Stalin and was a guest of the Soviet Union. This was at a time when Stalin was basically murdering millions of people, shifting off the gulags, artificial famine, just to get rid of Ukrainians, you name it. You didn't want to get on Uncle Joe's bad side there. Yet, George Bernard Shaw said, under the pressure of practical application, the Soviet government has turned communism into Fabianism. But the communists won't take our name, so we must take theirs. And this was uh, in the Washington Evening Star of November 27, 1931, page B11, if you care. And the title of the article was Shaw's Greatness Declared Vapid. Now, Chesterton and Shaw had a little bit of disagreement over socialism and Christianity. According to Shaw, he insisted that socialism is based on reason. And then, of course, never gave any reasons. He simply attacked someone, usually ad hominem. Uh, one of the worst cases was when he went after William Hurl Malick. Malick had one of the best critiques of socialism. Even Henry George admitted that Malick's critique of socialism was right spot on and was the only one worth considering. What Shaw went after was Malick's admittedly lousy defense of capitalism and proceeded to call Malick all kinds of names, not really even addressing Shaw, um, Malick's defense of capitalism, which I could pull apart. I mean, anybody could, but Shaw preferred to go after people rather than, than reasons. And so, but Shaw continued to insist that socialism is based on reason, but religion is based on irrational faith. And then of course, this was despite the fact that in the first Vatican Council, as well as the first question in the Summa Theologica and on and on and on, Reason is the foundation of faith. Your faith can't contradict reason any more than your reason can contradict faith. It's faith and reason, not faith or reason. So of course you have all kinds of people insisting on either faith or reason, and they'll go at each other hammer and tongs. Now Chesterton, however, insisted that Catholicism, particularly, is based on reason, while socialism is based on irrational faith. And he used to tick Shaw something take him off something fierce when he called Shaw a Puritan. <laughs> Shaw hated that. But he says, well, your vegetarianism and your teetotalism, those are perfectly consistent with your socialist religion. I mean, to you, socialism is a religion. No, no, no. Religion is irrational. Socialism is based on reason. And then, of course, he wouldn't, wasn't able to give any reasons for it's amazing. I, I, I've heard people called liars, and if you demand to know what the lies were, they won't tell you. They'll just keep insisting. Well, you must be a liar because you're denying it. And that's a lie, isn't it? Yes, but what lie did I tell? 
This is why we need to revamp academia so that people can learn how to think, which is another theme of Chesterton's life's work was you got to get people to think again. Don't just react. Don't just go off on a tangent someplace because it's something you want. I think they made a movie like that. Idiocracy. <laughs> I don't know. I stopped watching all those idiotic movies. What's like... Uh, once I stopped watching manga, that's it. You know, excuse me, anime. Uh, sorry. <laughs> More rational. Uh, Astro Boy was the height of. <laughs> and this is still his opinion, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, yeah. You mean you didn't like Speed Racer? <laughs> uh, I just played on the IMO. <laughs> <laughs> Turn on the IMO light. Now. As I said, most of Chesterton's major works, if not all of them, I haven't read, or I should say, I haven't analyzed all his major works, uh, were in reaction to other books or you know that had been written or somehow he was given a challenge. He said the easiest way, I think it was in Orthodoxy, 1908, where he said the easiest way to get him to write a book was to issue him a challenge. So... Now, in 1920, as we you know, covered in prior videos, Richard Henry Tawney, who was on the executive of the Fabian Society from 1920 to 1933, uh, he published the Acquisitive Society, which is considered the Socialist Bible by some people, by some people. Uh, in many respects, the book is simply a polemic against the Catholic Church, if you read it carefully. And, you know, Tawney was a good writer. So he's able to hide his prejudice under, you know, very good writing, which of course is what the best writers do. I, rem I remember, you know, a passage from one of Louisa May Alcott's books, uh, Rose in Bloom, where an uncle takes care of his orphaned niece or something. Uh, and she is reading a French novel to, you know, to improve her French. And he catches her with it, and he says, I don't want you reading that book. And she says, well, what's wrong with it? It's very well written, and the author is famous and says, here's why. He flips to the book, and he points to a passage and says, read that. And she read it, and she was shocked. She said, but if you had read through this whole book and then come to that passage, you would not have been shocked. You would have accepted it, because the book is well written. He had read it himself to make certain that he didn't want her reading it. But of course, when you do that, you better be careful about what you're reading too. Now, as so the acquisitive society was basically a, a polemic against Catholicism. Uh, and of course, he had declared that the Fraticelli, you know, the renegade Franciscans, were the only true Christians because they wanted to destroy society, destroy private property, and return to this kingdom of God on earth, recreate the Garden of Eden, which if you destroy all authority and all private property, of course we will have the perfect society, won't we? Which was, seemed to be Tawney's and most of the socialists' opinion, because we will spontaneously create the perfect socialist society. It will, it will just spring spontaneously into being instead of anarchy. Sometimes I think the anarchists have the better idea because they don't make any bones about what's going to happen. Now, 
1922, Chesterton converted to Catholicism. Outraging George Bernard Shaw, of course. Uh, his reasons, well, you don't really know anyone's real reasons for converting, except as Chesterton himself said, because he believed it to be true, which is the only real reason for converting to anything. Now, whether you like the music or the outfits or the ceremonies or anything else, that's kind of peripheral. Uh, or even if you convert after reading R.H. Tawney, that's still peripheral. Do you believe it to be true? You don't join the Catholic Church to change it from its truth. You join it to find out how does it teach truth? And frankly, in my opinion, you, you never really convert to Catholicism. What you do is you become Catholic because you already believe it to be true. Uh, my theory is that people like Newman and uh, Knox, Benson, and of course, Chesterton, and uh, didn't convert to Catholicism to become Catholic or to become Christian. They converted to Catholicism to remain Christian. There were some really odd things going on in the Church of England in the, in the 19th and early 20th centuries and are still continuing, frankly, today. I really feel sorry for the current Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, the head of the English, the Anglican Church. I think, this is my opinion, I think he's trying to get it back on a more Christian set, you know, track, but it's a political position. It, it's an established church. And frankly, parliament dictates doctrine. I mean, it was not supposed to be that way, but that's the way it ended up. And which actually why the Anglican church split off from the Catholic church anyway. That's why I said, but I, I think he's, He's well-intentioned, but I think he's fighting an uphill battle. But that's another story. Now, and of course, Chesterton always said in response to, why did you become a Catholic? Well, to get rid of my sins. And of course, because the Catholic Church was based on reason and common sense. Now, in my opinion, I have a personal theory that it may have been triggered by the election of Pius XI. From the very moment of his election, when Pius XI announced that his motto would be the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ, and made it clear that he was working for the reign of Christ the King, not the kingdom of God on earth. In my opinion, there are some things in Chesterton's letters that could refer to the election of Pius XI and that would ha might have triggered his final decision to convert. Because for years, Belloc and others had said, why don't you just become a Catholic? You seem to agree with everything we're saying, why not? There, as I said, nobody knows why anybody really converts. But in my opinion, what triggered the conversion could very well have been the election of Pius XI. They were both trying to do the same thing. And I think, uh, Chesterton became aware of that when Pius XI came on the, on the scene with his election, because it was only a few months later that Chesterton finally took, you know, took his final swim across the Tiber, as they say. Uh, again, personal opinion. Soon after that, Chesterton published his book, St. Francis of Assisi. Now, 
St. Francis of Assisi, did you ever see the Simpsons episode where I, I think it was either Homer or Marge turn around and say, most overrated saint? And both Bart and, and, and uh, uh, Lisa go, St. Francis of Assisi. See, the, the problem is that St. Francis of Assisi, a great man, I mean, even if you weren't a Catholic, and many people recognize this, it seems to be revered for all the wrong reasons. I mean, nobody seems to talk about his absolute obedience to the Pope. Nobody seems to understand that when he rejected private property, it was for himself. And Chesterton's analysis makes this clear. And he also tries to explain why the Fraticelli, who claimed to be returning to the true message of St. Francis, whom they seem to rate higher than Jesus, uh, were being wrongheaded and actually going directly contrary to what St. Francis of Assisi stood for and his whole, the whole message of his life. That's why they call it the, the mirror of St. Francis. It was one of the major chapters in the book. Uh, and this was, in my opinion, to correct the many misconceptions about St. Francis that were held, especially by the Fabians. The Fabian Society held St. Francis of Assisi in high regard. Uh, Louisa May Alcott, whose father was a socialist and who was somewhat infected, had you know, actually stuck St. Francis in one of her books, as, as not as a character, but someone was handed two holy cards. And she picked St. Francis of Assisi because, you know, il povero, you know, the virtues of poverty and everything else. And somebody, her, one of her cousins, who was, you know, more considered somewhat arrogant and prideful, picked St. Martin of Tours because, you know, this great act in splitting his cloak apart, which Louisa May Alcott said was the only Christian thing he ever did. I said, not exactly. It was probably the least Christian thing he ever did. Because when you read about his subsequent career, boy, he was somebody. You know, St. Martin of Tours was not just uh, a soldier who had a momentary charitable impulse. That was just the start of it. But we, as I said, another story. We could go on. In fact, in fact I do go on for hours on this stuff. <laughs> but anyway, as far as I'm concerned, the book, St. Francis of Assisi by G.K. Chesterton, it was intended to counter the contradiction of a Christian saint who is held hostage by the modernists to support attacks on Catholic doctrine, which is why he goes into such great length about the struggles between the Fraticelli and John the 22nd, the Pope at the time, who had to deal with them. Says, and as he put it in his introduction, and people don't seem to pay attention to these introductions, says, by helping people understand the real St. Francis, Chesterton was, in my opinion, hoping to restore you know, common sense as the basis of religious faith. Now, so it was not really the book that people think it is. And I think a lot of people take the wrong message from it. They think that he's glorifying the Fraticelli somehow, which he was not. He was responding, in my opinion, to Tawny's The Acquisitive Society, which was, which was glorifying the Fraticelli. And Chesterton was putting them in their proper perspective. They were trying to destroy property. In fact, as uh, Chesterton put it, he said, 
Some Franciscans, invoking the authority of Francis on their side, excuse me, proposed to abolish not only private property, but property. And that's on page 173 of the 1923 edition, if you care. Now, in fact, as far as Chesterton was concerned, there was no difference between socialism and modernism, which is my contention as well. I actually came across this quote after I had made that, you know, come to that conclusion. He said, and this was in 1930 in, in GK's Weekly, which we'll hear about a little bit more later. Uh, Apparently anything can be called socialism. If it means anything, it seems to mean modernism in the sociological as distinct from the theological sense. In both senses, it is generally a euphemism for muddle-headedness. Now, that was uh, in 1922. Now, to backtrack a little bit, in 1920, the same year that Tawney published The Acquisitive Society, H.G. Wells, not Orson Wells, published his outline of history. It was a bestseller. Uh, unfortunately, from the point of view of Chesterton, what it did was where Tawney's Acquisitive Society distorted historical fact, H.G. Wells's outline of history distorted the whole philosophy or, or theory of history. So in 1925, Chesterton published The Everlasting Man, one of his greatest books. Uh, I'm not sure that a lot of people who revere it really understand what he was doing with it, even though he says that he was, you know, responding to H.G. Wells' outline of history. And the, the whole idea was to correct, you know, the bad theory of history or the philosophy of history that Wells had put into the outline of history. It, it, it's a history book that doesn't give you too much history. What it does is give you a philosophy or theory of history, which is probably what you need to do before you read history. <laughs> and maybe that's why uh, history has fallen to such disrepute these days. Hardly anyone studies it. There's hardly any history majors left. I think uh, back when I did my book, 10 Battles Every Catholic Should Know, when I wrote the introduction, I, I looked and found that around 12% uh, of, of students were, were in history of some kind, and now it's like six or 7% or something. It just keeps falling dramatically. Most, if, if you ever wanna see something funny and sad at the same time, view one of Jay Leno's you know, jaywalking things where he talks about history and just, who won the Civil War? Uh, England? <laughs> Russia. <laughs> Canada? <laughs> was that the one where we fought with Mexico? You just put your head down going, please let this be a lie, but it's true. <laughs> now, uh, also, so, so basically, Chesterton's effort in The Everlasting Man, which came out in 1925, was concentrated on refuting the new Christian concepts of the incarnation as the central historical event, uh, especially the, the, the concept of the, the historical Jesus that popped up in the 19th century as part of the, the new Christian you know, mythology. Uh, now, also in 1925, it was a busy year for Chesterton, uh, as we find out, you know, when you convert to anything, you tend to really, really uh, get you going. 
and it did with Chesterton, certainly. Uh, that was when he also wrote the introduction to this uh, fellow, this new fellow's book, Fulton Sheen, God and Intelligence in Modern Philosophy in Light of the Philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. That's a snappy title if you ever heard one. Think of it as God and Intelligence. And the, the quote I like from that, when he actually says something substantive about the book, rather than sort of just palms it off as he did with Penny's book, says, in this book, as in the modern world generally, the Catholic Church comes forward as the one and only real champion of reason. Now, what's interesting is that uh, the English Sheen, oh, excuse me, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> uh, in, in 1926, and he was clearly working, he had to be working on this thing ahead of time, uh, he published The Catholic Church and Conversion. He shifted his emphasis from the institutional church, which had been the targets for, you know, Tawny's book. You know, the Acquisitive Society, Tawny went after the institutional Catholic Church. Uh, what Chesterton did in the Catholic Church and Conversion was shift from the institutional church to the individual Catholic. And why would anyone convert? And, of course, uh, he emphasizes the fact that you only convert if you believe it to be true. And in my opinion, he converted to remain Christian rather than become one or to become a Catholic. Uh, the, the, the pivotal quote in that book, as far as I'm concerned, is when he, Chesterton says, to become a Catholic is not to leave off thinking, but to learn how to think. And of course, you can see from just the fact that most of Chesterton's great books came after his conversion. In his opinion, he had learned how to think. So the Catholic convert has for the first time a starting point for straight and strenuous thinking. He has for the first time a way of testing the truth in any question that he raises. Now, Belloc, Hilaire Belloc, wrote the introduction to the Catholic Church and conversion. And with all due respect to Belloc, I think he missed the point because what Chesterton was talking about was an orientation. And so what, but what Belloc noted was the innumerable proofs upon which the rational basis of our religion reposes. But Chesterton wasn't giving the rational basis. He was giving you the approach to understanding the rational basis. It's a different thing. Philosophizing rather than philosophy theologizing rather than theology. I, don't, I can't figure out how to turn logic into <laughs> logicalizing. <laughs> uh, try not to invent too many words. I'm, I'm not R. Buckminster Fuller. If you've ever read any of Fuller's, why did you make up a word when you had a perfectly good word you could have used before? I get into arguments with that. Uh, strength? Oh, I have to put in a commercial. Whatever you may think of our Buckminster Fuller, he did not appear to support abortion, nor did he support population control. I, he and Jane Jacobs and uh, John Whalen, I, oh, another, sorry. <laughs> As I said, I get diverted very easily. Uh, now, following, you know, Chesterton, St. Francis of Assisi, you know that R.H. Tani wasn't going to let that go. Because, frankly, if you read both the Acquisitive Society and St. Francis of Assisi carefully, you'll see that Chesterton pretty much depth charged uh, 
Tawny's whole premise. And he wasn't going to let that go. Uh, so in 1926, Tawny published what many people think of as his magnum opus, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. This, of course, was while he was still on the executive of the, of the Fabian Society. And in Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, he had a simple theme. He was basically reiterating what he had said in the Acquisitive Society. Christianity has forgotten the real message of Jesus, which since Jesus was the first socialist, that meant we had to abolish private property. We had to abolish you know, politics and family and marriage as they exist today, because that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus meant what the socialists meant, because they know, because Jesus was the first socialist. And he also decided that religion must become less religious. He actually said that. Uh, what he meant was, instead of going to the kingdom you know, the reign of Christ the King, as this, this new Pope was talking about, you had to establish the kingdom of God on earth. We must create a heaven on earth, which of course, as Fulton Sheen later said, is a great way to create a hell for everybody. And Tani also demanded, quote, a change in the conception held of the nature and functions of a church, unquote. Basically turn it into a government agency. Forget all that God stuff. You don't need that. What you have collective man, you have humanity, you have the state, you don't need all that spiritual stuff. Churches must switch from being spiritual, they must become less religious and more materialistic, more naturalistic, as he put it. That was his word, not mine. I don't consider a church that gets away from the spiritual aspects to be natural at all. That's rather most unnatural. Uh, and I forgot to, I almost repeated the first, the whole second part of the lecture there. <laughs> Remember to turn your pages. Was the, 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 this actually happened allegedly. Uh, somebody pasted two pages of the preacher's Bible together. And it said, and Noah took unto himself a wife. And the length thereof was 200 cubits by 300 cubits by 500 cubits. And then he read it a couple more times. He says, surely the Lord works in mysterious ways and wonderful ways for great and wondrous for the dimensions of Noah's wife. <laughs> so don't skip key passages here. Uh, now, in my opinion, one of the goals of religion and the rise of capitalism was to continue the attacks on the Catholic Church and to ridicule Chesterton and Belloc. And I say that, you know, for a, for a very good reason, because where Chesterton and Belloc viewed themselves as progressive in the good sense, you know, in the Theodore Roosevelt sense, as I put it, and as Catholics, you know, Belloc especially prided himself on being a Catholic and of course, of course, Chesterton, as a recent convert, was everything was Catholic. You have to keep bringing Catholic into everything, even although for him it was appropriate. But sometimes it gets a little bit much. With as, as a friend of mine who was a Christian, who was a, a convert to Catholicism, says, "Boy, some of these converts—that's all they talk about." Uh, he was joking. <clears throat> I hope <clears throat> now. What Tawney said about them was, like some elements in the Catholic reaction of the 20th century, the Protestant reaction of the 16th 
sighed for a vanished age of peasant prosperity. The social theory of Luther who hated commerce and capitalism has its nearest modern analogy to the, in the distributive state of Mr. Belloc and Mr. Chesterton. So turns out that according to Tawney, Chesterton and Belloc who viewed themselves as progressive and Catholic were actually reactionary and Protestant. Slight dig there. Excellent writing, but what did he say? Well, he was going after Chesterton and Belloc. And I recall in one of the biographies I read of Tawney, his son said something to the effect that his relationship with Chesterton and Belloc was very complex. Well, was it good? Was it bad? It was very complex. Another way of not saying anything. In other words, he had to respect them as adversaries, but he had no real argument against them, so he had to avoid it. Fairly common way of dealing with people whose arguments you can't refute. You either attack them or you avoid them. Now, also in 1926, another busy year. See, as Chesterton said, becoming a Catholic or actually a convert to anything that you hold is deeply and sincerely true, it frees you up. It, it's, it's not that when, when people talk about coming home or coming to rest in the Catholic Church, it doesn't mean inactivity. It means a lot more activity. It just means that you're more stable about it and you've got a good solid base to work from. I mean, you can argue rationally with, with someone who converted to Islam and truly believes that that and is very stable in it, and you can have an honest discussion with them. But for somebody who was forced into it or did it just because for social reasons, you know, forget it, you're not gonna be able to argue with them. Now, in 1926, they formed the Distributist League. Uh, it's not, I, I don't recall at the moment who it was that was credited with, with, with the idea or forming it. I think Maisie Ward has some, there, there's some differences in opinion there, but a fellow named Titterton, whose first name I can't remember at the moment, uh, ended up heading it for a while until he had a falling out and then a refriending or something. Very complicated, a very contentious group of people. In fact, the, the, well, the original idea was to provide financial support for GK's weekly. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, probably quite correctly, kept demanding to know why Chesterton was wasting his time with this stupid newspaper that, you know, why don't you write books that you can make some money? Why don't you, you know, do something worthwhile? This stupid newspaper of yours, uh, you're letting anybody publish anything in it. It's not consistent. I mean, most of the people writing for it were Fabian socialists of one kind or another. And if you can tick off even George Bernard Shaw about Fabian socialism, it must be pretty bad. Not to say that Chesterton's contributions aren't worth reading to it, but as far as Shaw was concerned, they were all ephemera. Uh, and in fact, the Distributist League itself became a magnet for those that Hilaire Belloc called cranks. He did not think highly of them. In fact, he didn't seem to think highly of anybody, but that's another issue. Uh, Chesterton himself said, and this was a quote, we have had some very fantastic human forms lingering about our office. <laughs> and, but 
Chesterton was probably, without qualification, one of the most genial people who ever lived. He might not agree with you, but he would put up with you. Belloc might even agree with you, but he still wouldn't put up with you. Uh, but unfortunately, meetings of the distributively became so acrimonious. I mean, they turned Chesterton into a referee for people who were arguing about the dumbest things. I could go on and on, uh, but I, on, on that, but I won't. But it just got so bad that Chesterton himself stopped attending meetings of the league, except for the annual dinner. And even then, he would spend most of his time doodling on paper, you know, drawing those those cartoons he was famous for on paper that they gave him for the purpose so they wouldn't have to listen to the speeches or anything else. And the moment he could, he made a dash for the bar. I mean, anything to get out of it. You wonder why the poor man drank. Uh, probably had cirrhosis of the liver by the time he, they were through with him. Uh, anyway, a fellow named J.B. Morton, who was a friend of Belloc, he had, he talked about a typical distributist league meeting when he got hoodwinked or lasso roped into being the chairman instead of Belloc. Belloc apparently had had just too much. So Belloc roped his friend Morton into, into chairing the meeting. And it said, and this is from his memoir of, of Belloc. He says, the good-natured, easygoing Chesterton would have sat there all night answering even the silliest questions. Belloc whispered loudly to me, probably in a big stage whisper so that everyone could hear it. He said, Belloc whispered loudly to me after a while, we can't go on like this. Stop them. You're chairman. We have to, you can stop them. <laughs> Diplomat. Okay. And George Bernard Shaw, he thought that the, the distributous leaguers were a bunch of flakes. He really did. I mean, at one point he said to Chesterton, he said, is there really a distributist league or is it merely Titterton running in and out with a flag? <laughs> and that brings us up to the final debate between Chesterton and Shaw. 1927, do we agree? Well, they hadn't agreed for 20 years. Why should they start agreeing now? Why should they even talk about it? Well, the reason for the debate was to raise money for the Distributist League to keep GK's weekly going. I mean, less than a year and they were already in financial trouble again. Uh, so, okay, yeah. Now, the whole thing is that the whole position of Chesterton and Shaw was that they had been arguing the same point for decades and never come up with with, with a resolution. And Belloc knew they were not going to resolve it. And he looked down on the Distributist League for whose benefit this debate had been organized. He looked down on Shaw for raising such stupid questions time after time. He was kind of probably angry a little bit with Chesterton for putting up with it. And so as he, he moderated or possibly immoderated the debate and just to, to read a description of how they set it up and, is an, and the ticket sales and everything else was another thing altogether. But as Belloc opened it up, he goes, and most people take this that, that Belloc was being witty or clever or funny or something. He was not. I think he was being dead serious when he said this. He said, they are about to debate. 
you are about to listen. I am about to sneer. I don't think he was being clever or witty at all. He was just telling the truth. He was, he, he had contempt for these people and it showed, unfortunately. I mean, especially when you have contempt for somebody, try to keep it in bounds. Maybe they don't deserve it. Then again, maybe they do, but that's another issue. So Chesterton's position, we're gonna summarize the debate very quickly here. Mr. Bernard Shaw proposes to distribute wealth. We just propose to distribute power. Now, of course, as you recall, as I mentioned in an earlier video, as Daniel Webster said in 1820, power naturally and necessarily follows property. So of course, if you're talking about power, what you're talking about is widespread capital ownership because otherwise people are not going to have power. They are going to be dependents, either on the state or some private employer or an owner or some such thing. It's a, basically a case of own or be owned, one way or another. Uh, now Shaw's position, of course, and these are quotes from the debate, which are the getting, you know, getting aside all the clever comments that people came to hear. This was the substance. It says, my main activity, this is Shaw, my main activity as an economist of late has been to try to concentrate the attention of my party on the fact not only that they must distribute income, but that there is nothing else to distribute. Well, that's a foolish thing to say for an economist, especially, unless, of course, you're a Keynesian, or if you're Keynes, if you're a Fabian, which is one of the reasons why I think that Keynes was, if not an enrolled member of the Fabian Society, at least completely in sympathy with them. <coughs> now, now we come up to the book that, and this is the home stretch now, because I regard this book as Chesterton's greatest work, as I say, in my opinion. In 1933, he published St. Thomas Aquinas' The Dumb Ox. Uh, dumb having all the connotations that you would associate with it. Uh, it is, in my opinion, Chesterton's masterpiece. Uh, he, he put it in the context of his earlier book, St. Francis of Assisi, which is why I think that just as St. Francis of Assisi was a response to uh, Tawney's The Acquisitive Society, St. Thomas Aquinas was Chesterton's response to religion and the rise of capitalism. But where in St. Francis of Assisi, he, Chesterton explained what needed refuting, in St. Thomas of St. Thomas Aquinas, he explained how to refute, not giving the arguments, not giving the philosophy, uh, but giving a, a basically a how-to manual, which is why Etienne Gilson, you know, the noted Thomas philosopher, said it was the best book on Aquinas ever written. But it, if you read it, you will not find very much out about either Thomas Aquinas or his philosophy. What you will find out is how to use the same technique that Aquinas used. But you, you won't be able to pass a course on Thomas philosophy if you read the book. He was, Chesterton was not being a great philosopher as some people think. He was not being a great theologian as some people think. He was philosophizing, as I said. 
And of course, the goal was the same as it always was, as it was in Sheen's book, was to restore God and man to their respective places. You don't put collective man in there as a sort of God. I mean, unlike what Emil Durkheim said, God is not a divinized society. Religion is not the group's worship of itself, which is what socialism ends up being, as does modernism. Now, the thing is that you, he, not, it, Chesterton was not going after the principles or the applications of the principles in St. Thomas Aquinas. He was going after you how you understand them, faith, reason, and how faith and reason, you know, go together. It was, as I said, not philosophy, but philosophizing. And the goal was not the arguments or the evidence. It was how to argue instead of sneering. And I think this was kind of a, a slap on the wrist to Belloc, too, because, as Belloc said, he was sneering. And according to Chesterton, that is not the way to argue. It is not the way to convince people or persuade people around your point of view. You don't just sneer. What you do is you agree on some fundamental principle and then argue. And as he pointed out, this never ends. If you're genuinely arguing, you will always find something to argue about. Uh, as he said, and this is a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, and I said, I'm going to be using a lot of quotes from Chesterton in this simply because he said it so much better than I could. It's much better than a paraphrase, excuse me. Says it is generally the man who is not ready to argue who is ready to sneer. You know, address. I think he was talking about Belloc in that distributist league uh, debate. Uh, that is why in recent literature there has been so little argument and so much sneering. Now, as Chesterton had made plain in earlier discussions. That's a polite way of putting it, with George Bernard Shaw. Um, the whole idea of the book, St. Thomas Aquinas, was to change how people understand faith and reason and how faith and reason relate to one another. The way Chesterton put it was, as, as he reminded Shaw, says, like Sancho Panza and Don Quixote, faith and reason are two halves of a whole. You can't separate them. I mean, Don Quixote de la Mancha doesn't even make sense without both of them in there. Now, this is where you really get, uh, this is where the sufferings of Chesterton, the passion of Chesterton, really comes to the fore. Because in my opinion, he was drawing a parallel between what Aquinas, his, his great debate with Sigur of Brabant, and of course the other Latin Averroists, and the Distributist League, who kept trying to insist that distributism is really some form of socialism. And they kept trying to drag it in there, and he kept trying to drag it out. And it, they didn't seem to be paying any attention to what he was doing. So in when the, the whole heart of St. Thomas Aquinas, the book, is in that debate between Sigur of Brabant and Thomas Aquinas. And you can ask yourself, did Chesterton put himself in Aquinas's place, and did he put, you know, George Bernard Shaw in Sigur of Brabant's place? It's that's one possible interpretation, according to me. And he was alluding, I think, in my opinion, to you know 
drawing the parallel between what you know the distributist league and of course the debate which the final debate with Shaw and the debate between Aquinas and Sigur of Brabant, the chief of the Latin Averroists. Now, what did Sigur of Brabant do in that debate? And this is key to understanding the suffering that Chesterton went through. And of course that Aquinas went through. Sigur changed the nature of truth itself. He came up with this whole Chesterton calls it the sophistry of the double mind of man, in which you can believe science when you're being a scientist, but then you can disbelieve science when you're being, you know, a religionist. You know, faith and reason are so completely separate that they can contradict each other. What Sigur of Brabant did was insert a way of violating the first principle of reason, which as I mentioned in an earlier video, the first principle of reason is, in the negative sense, nothing can both be and not be at the same time under the same conditions. Something cannot be true in religion and false in science. Something cannot be true in science and false in religion. If your beliefs tend that way, then your job is to resolve that conflict and you know, get rid of the contradiction. You can't just dismiss it or shoot the person, or as, as Chesterton put it, you can't just run somebody through with a sword. He said, if someone refuses to argue, as St. Louis of France, you know, put it, I said, if they won't argue, you know, then you can run them through with a sword or do whatever else. But uh, if they won't argue, that's the end of the matter right there. There's, there's, there's nothing, there's no common ground. So, but the problem was, and this is the same thing the Distributist League did to Chesterton, was that Sigur of Brabant made it sound as if Aquinas was agreeing with him at the same time that he was stating something so opposite, so completely alien to what Aquinas was saying that it drove Aquinas to one of his few outbursts of temper that he ever had. I mean, according to Chesterton, and of course everyone else, Aquinas lost his temper twice in his life. The first when uh, his brothers tried to get him to sleep with a prostitute and he drove her out, temporary anger. The second was in the debate with Sigur of Brabant when Sigur of Brabant tried to get Aquinas to betray everything he had stood for his entire life. And as Chesterton put it, he said, they committed the worst treachery they had made him agree with them. And that was exactly the same way, in other words, the deception Sigur of Brabant used. So the, 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 basically the deception Sigur of Brabant used to try and win the argument against Aquinas was the same trick the members of the Distributist League were using in their efforts to make distributism and socialism the same thing. In other words, take anything Chesterton says and twist it to support their position which I think that Chesterton couldn't be angry as Chesterton, but he could be angry as Aquinas. There was a little bit of self-identification going on there, not much, not as much as some people seem to think. But the fact is that you don't write the way Chesterton did in that book without really feeling it. You know, they, they tell you as a writer, write what you know. 
Well, the one thing I think that Chesterton really knew for that book was the way that the people calling themselves Chestertonians and distributists were betraying the very essence of what it meant to be a Chestertonian and a distributist and making it sound as if Chesterton himself was supporting it. And in my opinion, they're still doing it today. Watch out for the mail. You're going to get on that one. <clears throat> now, here's where we stick in the big long quotes. Uh, but as I said, Chesterton was saying it so much better than I can. And this is, you know, stop holding your breath and start sharpening your knives because we're coming up to the, to the conclusion now. It says, so in his last battle and for the first time, he, that is Aquinas, fought as with a battle axe. There is a ring in the words altogether beyond the almost impersonal patience he maintained in debate with so many enemies. In other words, for only the second time in his life, Aquinas lost his temper. The one thing Chesterton simply couldn't bring himself to do, even with people who were, he may have thought were betraying him. And this quote, Chesterton took straight out of Aquinas's dissertation on the unity of the intellect against the Averroists, you know, the Latin Averroist Sigur of Brabant. Behold our refutation of the error. It is not based on documents of faith but on the reasons and statements of the philosophers themselves. And he continues, if then anyone there be who boastfully taking pride in his supposed wisdom and sneering, of course, wishes to challenge what we have written, let him not do it in some corner nor before children who are powerless to decide on such difficult matters. Let him reply openly if he dare. He shall find me there confronting him and not only my negligible self, but many another whose study is truth. We shall do battle with his errors or bring a cure to his ignorance. Now you can look that up and it's almost, uh, well, it is verbatim. It's just a different translation of De Unitate Intellectus Contra Averroistas, paragraph 124, the conclusion of, you know, the treatise. Now, as I said, Chesterton couldn't speak as Chesterton that way, but he could speak as Aquinas. And Aquinas is a particular bugbear of all the socialists and the modernists. I haven't met one yet who somehow didn't denigrate Aquinas. One way or another, they do it. Oh, Aquinas didn't understand what I mean by fill in the blank. But this is what in Studiorum Ducem, the encyclical on St. Thomas Aquinas by that uh, promulgated by Pius XI says, against the much vaunted liberty of the human reason and its independence in regard to God, Aquinas asserts the rights of primary truth and the authority over us of the Supreme Master. In other words, reason doesn't mean getting rid of God or religion. It reinforces it. It's faith and reason, not faith or reason. It is therefore clear why modernists are so amply justified in fearing no doctor of the church so much as Thomas Aquinas. And boy, do they. I mean, frankly, Sigur of Brabant and the Distributist League inverted the whole idea and purpose. That's a quote uh, from St. Thomas Aquinas, the, the book, not, not St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> it says, inverted the whole idea and purpose of the lives of Aquinas and Chesterton, respectively, in my opinion. 
I'll have to be careful where I go out in public nowadays. Uh, and frankly, probably speaking for both Aquinas and Chesterton, although it's kind of iffy to be speaking for somebody who's been dead for 800 years and you're not in direct communication with, I mean, what's interesting is I find today a lot of Chestertonians and distributists proclaiming very loudly that they know what Chesterton would have said about Biden. They know what Chesterton would have said about Trump. No, you don't. The only reason we know what he would have said about Hitler is because he said it. Now, however, probably speaking for both of them, Chesterton and Aquinas, Chesterton said, in the abyss of anarchy opened by Sigurd's sophistry of the double mind of man, he had seen the possibility of the perishing of all idea of religion and even of all idea of truth. Well, what was it that Chesterton kept writing books about, but these against these people who wanted to abolish the traditional idea of religion and even of truth itself? The Fabian Socialists, whom the Distributist League and other distributists and Chestertonians kept trying to insist that Chesterton was a, was a Fabian socialist. I mean, if you look at one, I don't know if it exists anymore, it was some time ago, but there was a list of recommended books for people interested in distributism and in Chesterton. And of course you had Small is Beautiful by the Fabian socialist E.F. Schumacher. You had Religion and the Rise of Capitalism by the Fabian socialist R.H. Tawney. And you had books by Penty and others. I thought, this, there, were, there were more books by Fabian Socialists at the list at one time than there were by Chesterton and Belloc. I said, if I want to find out about Chesterton and Belloc, I'll read books by Chesterton and Belloc, or at least about them. Now, for, and I think, again, Chesterton was speaking for both him and Aquinas. So there remained a sort of, quote, a sort of horror of that outer world in which there blew such wild winds of doctrine. Now, as a professed religious, Aquinas could take sanctuary in the cloister. I think, and this is my opinion, Chesterton took refuge in amiability and geniality. You couldn't get him mad. I mean, you could disagree with him 100%. When he met with Mussolini, he had good things to say about it. I don't think he was all that enthusiastic about Mussolini, but he said good things about him, of course, which got him into trouble later. But then somebody like Arthur Petty could become an out and out fascist and just have glowing reviews of Mussolini. Uh, the one person I don't think Chesterton said anything good about was Hitler, I, I, for some strange reason. Uh, but I, I, I think he took refuge in being, you know, a big clown, a buffoon, or as he called it, a moron. Yeah, like heck. I can't use the other word. <laughs> this is a family show. At least I'm trying to keep it that way. <clears throat> Just bleep out anything untoward or improper that I say. Or, or, or just put it, the IMO light goes on. <laughs> now, and this is what happened with, 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 with you know, the Distributist League. But he's talking about Chesterton. I mean, excuse me, Chesterton is talking about Aquinas. And this is, again, a quote. It says, his friend Reginald asked him to return also to his regular, equally regular habits of reading and writing and following the controversies of the hour. See, after the debate, he had, you know, returned to the routine of the cloister. I think just to get away from all that nuttiness that he had seen out there. And 
Aquinas said, and th this, I'll return to the quote, he said with a singular emphasis, I can write no more. That's an unusual thing for somebody like Aquinas to say, because as Chesterton points out, he said he wrote books enough to sink a ship. Uh, so then the quote continues. And as I said, I think he was speaking for himself at least as much as for Aquinas. There seems to have been a silence after which Reginald again ventured to approach the subject. And Thomas answered him with even greater vigor. I can write no more. I have seen things which make all my writings like straw. And even though Chesterton, of course, continued writing, nothing has quite the same force of that book on St. Thomas Aquinas. I think he was giving his final message to you know, the Chestertonians and distributists that, you know, get back on track. This is your final warning. Maybe he had even an intimation of his, of his own death. I don't know. But he seems to have been drawing up, you know, more than just a little, more than just a few parallels between himself and Aquinas. And he died three years later. He, he died on uh, June 14th, 1936. And frankly, distributism came to an end as anything coherent or as even distinct from socialism. Belloc tried to continue and it, it, it didn't work. I, I recall reading that Belloc said, you know, after he got over Chesterton's death, which he, well, sort of, he never really got over it. Uh, he said, now he could purge all these, these cranks out of the movement. Well, it turned out he couldn't. Uh, and frankly, he was not quite as personable as Chesterton, and he was not going to suffer fools gladly. Uh, a phrase that I detest because it, you know, it's sort of a, a rigidity of mind that says there will be no compromise, and you could not compromise with Belloc, yeah, especially when he was wrong, and he was wrong on certain, you know, number of things in economics, but that's a, a, that's another presentation. Uh, and I, I think what really sums it up is I, I took it from a biography of Chesterton, Michael Corrin's Gilbert, the man who was G.K. Chesterton, you know, obviously inspired by the man who was Thursday, one of his surreal uh, books. It says, Gilbert's death signified the end of the philosophy, if that is what it was, as a serious proposition. He had kept it alive. Squabbles and lack of direction tore the movement apart. Now, the way people behaved after Chesterton's death, to me, sums up, you know, I, I won't call it futile because he left a legacy that as long as it's there, there's still a chance that things can be turned around. And what he was talking about can truly be implemented. I think that my work with, with the Center for Economic and Social Justice, especially with, you know, what we call the just third way of economic personalism is one way of doing it but that's a future presentation. Now, people were acting as, if, oh, we have lost our great saint. We have lost our great philosopher. We have lost our great theologian. We have lost our great man, our great leader, our great this, our great that. You know, Father Vincent McNabb, who was kind of, uh, I'll call him a character. Uh, I 
personally don't think much of him simply because he was down on accountants. He, he considered accountants drones. And I happen to be a certified public accountant, so I'm going to take that umbrage at that. But when he visited Francis, you know, Chesterton's wife, uh, sometime after Chesterton's death, he rushed into Chesterton's study, knelt down and kissed Chesterton's pen. I mean, come on. I see what poser there. I mean, come on. Uh, Belloc at least had an honest reaction. He, they couldn't find him after the funeral. They found him in a public house trying to drink beer. And he couldn't. He was he was he was completely devastated. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what makes me admire George Bernard Shaw, not for all the other crud that he pulled but the way he behaved after Chesterton's death. All these other people are weeping and wailing and moaning their loss. Shaw went to Francis and he said, do you need anything? Do you need, do you need any money? And he kept, you know, he kept in touch. He wanted to make certain that she was okay. All these, of course he said, you know, he, he was broken up that Chesterton, who was a generation younger than he was, had died first, but he didn't forget that Chester, he, I think he was one of the few people who actually saw Chester as a human being. Hmm. I mean, he'd argue with him to the point of just losing it completely. But I think that to George Bernard Shaw, G.K. Chesterton was a genuine human being, not just some figure to put up on a pedestal or make the head of your, you know, your, your great leader or great something else. When what he did for Chesterton's wife after Chesterton's death, to me, says it all. I can forgive Shaw a lot for that. Not for what he said and did, but, you know, socially, but as a person. Yeah. If anything saved Shaw, you know, the atheist, teetotal, uh, vegetarian, whatever, it was that. He was, a, he was basically a decent human being. <laughs> Dead uh, wrong on his ideas, but he was a decent yeah. dude. It must be awfully hard to take, but <laughs> I, I remember seeing. Did you ever hear of a, a series of cartoons called "Through History" with J. Wesley Smith that used to, Burr Schaefer? They used to appear in the New Yorker in the 1960s. No, I didn't see those. No, they are hilarious. Okay. See, you can see you can find sometimes uh, uh, copies of, of the collections okay. in used bookstores, and one of them shows J. Wesley Smith, history's greatest wrong guesser. He's just been kicked out of the house by George Bernard Shaw. And Shaw's there at the door like this with that beard and everything else. And J. Wesley Smith is on the ground. And he says, all I did was say that Pygmalion would make a great musical. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, My Fair Lady was taken from George Bernard Shaw's play, Pygmalion. <laughs> it was a Harry Truman once said that what, if, what he liked about Burr Schaefer's cartoons was he understood them. <laughs> Now, if as a result of this presentation, some people come to understand, in my opinion, Chesterton better, then we have accomplished something. And in fact, next time, what we'll do is how people have misunderstood Heinrich Pesch and Solidarism. But if you come to a deeper understanding, in my opinion, and the light goes on, uh, of Chesterton and distributism, then, as I said, I, I think we've done what we set out to do. Yeah, I, could, I, I won't put in the uh, the Will Danger Will Robinson Danger Will Robinson uh, uh, <laughs> machine robot. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, I felt sorry for Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, appreciate it. As always look forward to next time. Okay, thanks a lot.